Today we're reading from Mark chapter 9. Uh, this chapter has some of the most important concepts in the entire New Testament in it, so we're going to take it slowly. But before we read that, I want to encourage you, if you have not done so already, to go back to Mark chapter 8 and read it, because Mark chapter 9 picks up immediately after those events. So here, let's go to the Word together, and then we'll talk about it. <clears throat> and he said to them, I tell you the truth. Some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God come with power. <clears throat> After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up on a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses who were talking with Jesus. <clears throat> Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and enveloped them, and a voice came from the cloud, This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they, were no, longer, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. <clears throat> As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. <clears throat> and they asked him, Why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, To be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? <clears throat> but I tell you, Elijah has come. And they have done to him everything they wished, just as it is written about him. When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them, and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all of the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing about? he asked. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son, who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. <clears throat> I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. O oh, unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him. And when the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into a fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for him who believes. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the evil spirit you deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. <clears throat> the spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently, and it came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet, and he stood up. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, this kind can come out only by prayer. They left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were, because he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. 
but they did not understand what he meant, and they were afraid to ask him about it. They came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, What were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet, because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, If anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last, and the servant of all. He took a little child and had him stand among them. Taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me does not welcome me but the one who sent me. Teacher, said John, we saw a man driving out demons in your name, and we told him to stop because he was not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said. No one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me. For whoever is not against us is for us. I tell you the truth. Anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name, because you belong to Christ, will certainly not lose his reward. And if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a large millstone tied around his neck. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go to hell, where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with each other. Let's talk about this remarkable passage, and there's so much here to unpack. First, a quick comment about the numbering system in the New Testament. Remember, when these documents were written originally in the first century, they did not contain numbers for the chapters or verses. Those were added later um, in the late Middle Ages as a way to help biblical scholars to um, hone in on certain passages to be able to talk about them, to relate them. And uh, this was an important part of the translation of the New Testament from the original Greek, uh, Aramaic, and Hebrew documents. So chapter 9 seems to just be smacked down right in the middle of a narrative. But I think the Middle Ages scholars who assigned chapter 9 to this particular place knew that they had to make a deliberate connection between what Jesus says at the very beginning, saying, I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God come in power. The reason that the scholars who assigned chapter 9 to start there, seemingly in the middle of a conversation, is this. Remember who was Jesus, the Messiah, to the Jews of the first century. That's right. He was a military conqueror. He was a king, in the, a human king in the model of David, who was going to raise up an army to vanquish their overlords, in this case the Roman Empire, and drive them out of Israel and establish a new kingdom. Well, when the disciples heard Jesus say, I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God come with power, Those original disciples probably interpreted those words the way you might interpret them, or a young believer might. That, oh, he's saying the end of the world might come 
within a few years of me, Jesus, saying that. Because you would, you would imagine in your head, <clears throat> you know, Daniel, the book of Daniel, um, what you know as the book of Revelation, the end of the world is a thing. It will come, and God will destroy this reality and remake it into a perfect new reality. The Jews believed that even back in the first century. And to the disciples hearing those words, they might have misinterpreted that comment as saying, oh, the Messiah will come in our lifetime. There will be that reckoning of good and evil. Justice will be served. And um, essentially, the world will be remade. But they got it wrong. In the same way you would get it wrong if you interpreted that way. What Jesus was actually saying was, for you, my disciples, you will not pass away until you see the Son of Man, essentially, come in glory, in power. And that is exactly what happens in the transfiguration that happens in the verses that follow. We know that that is a connected statement because the author makes it very clear that immediately after Jesus says, there are some standing here who will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God come in power. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. That is exactly a connected reference. Some of you will not die before you see the kingdom of God come in glory and power. And then six days later, he took three of his closest disciples up a mountain and showed them his glory. And the second thing here is that transfiguration. <clears throat> a lot happens in this moment. Remember again, these disciples think that Jesus is still just this human military conqueror who is coming to free the Jews from the oppressive Roman overlords. They do not still get that Jesus is co-equal in divinity with his Father, God. Here, Jesus is going to physically show them that that is the truth. So, as the text says, Jesus was transfigured before them, meaning he changed. The disciples got to see his true glorious divinity revealed before them. The Greek here is wonderful, exostrapto. Exostrapto means literally to dazzle as if flashing with lightning. Now, that's pretty bright. And I would uh, agree with the author of Mark here that it is wider than anything you could ever bleach. This is like light itself being radiantly outpouring from Jesus. <clears throat> so that connects Jesus with the divinity of God and his great and awesome power. The second thing that's connected here is with Elijah and Moses. We have this strange moment where, um, you know, the disciples are sitting there looking and suddenly there's these figures standing there, which they recognize as Elijah and Moses. Now, many people have asked me, how did they know that that was Elijah and Moses? Did they have name tags? <laughs> Hello, my name is Moses. No. <clears throat> I think we can interpret here from the text that these figures were, in fact, supernaturally revealed to the disciples on that mountain that they were Elijah and Moses. So there seems to be some way in God's supernatural afterlife that people can recognize each other, even if they've never met them before. The second important takeaway here is probably for more of the audience of the first century who were not really sure there was an afterlife. This is an important point, and it bears kind of some thought and focus here. 
most Jews throughout history did not really believe in an afterlife like we do today in the modern world. I know that sounds strange, <clears throat> and certainly if you read the New Testament first, then you go back to the Old Testament, you're kind of shocked by this. But the Jewish culture of the time really didn't focus on the afterlife. In fact, death was often referred to as Sheol, which is the Hebrew word for the grave. So the idea in the, you know, for the Jews of the first century was when you die, you're kind of dead and that's it. You get buried, you get gathered so-called to your fathers, and that's kind of it. There's a few veiled references to the afterlife. Uh, but for the most part, most people never really even thought about it that much. Like after I die personally, I am going to have some kind of reawakening. Now this was a very controversial point, in fact, in the first century between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Remember, we've talked about Pharisees being teachers of the law. They were uh, experts in the law, but they also believed in an afterlife. They believed in spirits like angels and demons, and that those spirits had a profound impact on the world around them. The Sadducees rejected all of that. Sadducees did not believe in an afterlife. They thought once you're dead, you're dead and it's oblivion. You're gone. And they also rejected the idea that there was this unseen spiritual world impacting uh, people around them. The transfiguration completely refutes the Sadducees' view of the world. It says in this one <laughs> brief moment, one, there is an afterlife. Elijah and Moses are not the appearance of Elijah and Moses. They are not the apparitions or the avatars. They are according to the text, the actual Elijah and Moses of the Old Testament. So they're still there. They are seemingly alive. They're walking around. They look like people. So we can infer from this a great deal about God and about the Bible. There is an afterlife and the the essence of who Elijah and Moses are remains. Now, I'm not going to make any further comment than that about are they a resurrected body. I'm not going to go that far because I don't think they are. I think they're in this kind of transitory state at this point either because God is showing them the future where Elijah and Moses do get a resurrected body like the rest of us who believe in Jesus. He could be showing them a glimpse of the future. It may not be the, the present as we understand it in the first century. But I don't think we need to really dive down that rabbit hole anymore. We can conclude that Elijah and Moses are there on the mountain and they are recognized. <clears throat> the third important takeaway from this moment is God is trying to make a very clear connection between Jesus, the divine Jesus, and the law and the prophets of the Jewish religion. Remember, the law from Moses was a critical part of the, the culture and worship of the Jewish people for 1,500 years up to that point. And God's trying to show a connection here. That, here, this is valid. This is me, Yahweh, the God of the Jewish people, revealing myself to you. You know these people. Moses is one of the most important people in your belief system. And he is connected to the law. Elijah is probably at this point in history the most revered prophet of the Jewish religion. And the prophets do what? They speak God's truth to their people. They reveal God's truth to his people. And in many cases, they predict the future. 
So in this one wonderful moment, God is drawing a connection, kind of like a triangle here, with Jesus at the top of the triangle and the two bases being Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets. The law and the prophets are important. They are a foundation of our belief system, but Jesus, the divine Christ, is superior to both of them in this one moment. And finally here, we hear God himself, God the Father himself, maybe one of the last few clear cases in the entire New Testament, maybe even history, where God the Father speaks to humanity. And he actually says, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Now, this moment is earth shattering for Peter, James, and John, who went up on that mountain with Jesus. They have suddenly, their whole world is upside down. You have to imagine that everything that they kind of, their preconceptions and their, their misunderstandings have been laid bare before them. With Jesus now appearing to them as something radically different than they expected, you have to imagine the wheels in their head turning and turning and turning. And you see even this comment, they kept the matter to themselves because they didn't, they didn't really understand what they had just seen. And they're saying to each other, what does rising from the dead mean? Remember what I just said, they probably didn't really see much of an afterlife. And now, not only is Jesus not the Messiah they expected, there is an afterlife. And their Messiah, who they think is just some human guy, is going to die and then come back to life. That never happened to a king of Israel in the past. All of these things are very different. The world is upside down here. So with all of this kind of spinning in their head, this comment about Elijah did come. Remember, here's another example of Jesus speaking figuratively. It happens. Jesus said, if and he says it here, and he says it in other parts of the other Gospels. It's recorded that he said, if you believe it, John the Baptist is Elijah. So Elijah did come back, as predicted by the prophets of the Old Testament, the Jewish religion, but it was not what they expected either. Here, Jesus is clearly being figurative in the sense that John the Baptist was that model of the last, essentially, the last Old Testament prophet. And he predicted the Messiah would come. He prepared the way for him, just like Elijah would have. So Jesus is speaking figuratively there, but he wants that deeper truth to be understood and believed by his disciples. Now, a very, a lot of things happen as a result of the transfiguration that are essentially wheels set in motion. And the first we, we see immediately after the disciples and Jesus come down off of that mountain and get back to the other um, nine disciples who were not on that mountain. And immediately this incident happens where a man had brought his son to those other nine disciples and said, you know, he's, he's got this demon. It's a physically affecting him. They couldn't heal him. Now, I think here Jesus is showing that there is a hierarchy amongst his disciples in which Peter, James, and John are definitely the three disciples who had matured the most at that point and had had the closest relationship with Jesus and probably understood him better, if you can call it that, than the other nine. So their faith journey is certainly further along than the other nine disciples, and that is borne out in what has happened now while they were on that mountain. 
The other nine disciples, probably a little more immature in their belief system, more immature in their understanding of Christ, more immature in their faith and their, and their prayer, and certainly more immature in their pride, have now been confronted with their own dilemma. They tried to heal this boy and they couldn't. Now, Jesus' comments here seem to be strange to us, right? Um, disciples say, I couldn't, we couldn't heal this person. We tried to drive it out. And Jesus, you know, he immediately rebukes them. He says, oh, unbelieving generation, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bam, slap in the face. He goes through this. He has this moment where he heals them. And then he makes this comment, you know, why couldn't we heal him? And he goes, this kind can only come out by prayer. This is my interpretation of what happened. I think those other nine disciples being less mature, being more kind of full of themselves, thinking, oh, we're the 12 disciples, right? They had gone out previously. They had healed people on the road. Remember that it happened. Jesus had kind of uh, deputized them to go out and preach the gospel and have these supernatural powers of the Holy Spirit um, uh, and be able to use his, his power in the world. But here they couldn't do it. I think what happened was those disciples became so full of themselves and so proud of themselves, they lost sight of what they were actually doing. I think they lost sight that, no, uh, we, the disciples, are not the ones healing people. We are not the ones that need to get glory from the healing. We are not the ones that need to get all of the accolades. I think they started to think that in their mind and got a little full of themselves, and Jesus kind of smacks them back down again and says, look, you're not doing this for the right reasons. You're doing it for yourselves. You're doing it for your own glory. You're not doing it for the Father's glory. And so, by prayer... And in some manuscripts, fasting, what he's saying is, you need to keep your eyes on God. The reason that you're healing people is through God's intervention and his relationship. And you are just the conduit, but you're not the whole story. I think that's what happened here. And I think that is, again, the support for that is the very next passage where they're all arguing about who is the greatest. Remember I said these wheels are in motion now from the transfiguration. Jesus has taken three of his closest disciples up the mountain, leaving the other nine down at the you know, base at the village. They're all starting to see there is a hierarchy here. And they're all trying to um, elbow their way up that hierarchy ladder so they can be in the innermost circle of this Messiah so that when they think he takes control and he starts this rebellion and he, he becomes king of the Jews again, they'll all be on the inside and have the highest glory and the highest power in the court of that king. So they're arguing, they're like Peter, James, and John, there's probably bitterness there. They probably, you know, they might despise them a little. Like, why do they get to go up with Jesus on the mountain? What about us? We're great, aren't we? Who's the greatest? And that comment of who's the greatest shows their heart, folks. That's exactly what Jesus was just talking about. By their arguing, they're showing their true colors, that they're more concerned about their own personal uh, you know, status in this, in this effort than they are about the gospel message itself and about God himself. And Jesus follows that up with this comment about servanthood. He takes these children around them, and, and as an example of believers, says those children should be served 
and you should surround yourself with those children and nourish them and care for them and give them what they need because that is what my gospel message is about. Remember, in this, in this culture, and in fact many cultures today, outside of the developed world, children are the lowest part of the totem pole in society. They are not honored. They are considered annoying. You know, they're considered um, essentially, you know, you have to put up with them, you have to feed them, and we're really annoyed by that, but we have them so they can help us do work. Uh, and of course, because we, we want our family. So Jesus is taking these children who are absolutely the lowest status people in this society and saying they should be the ones you are serving. And for for these disciples thinking this is all about an earthly king who is going to be um, in power and, and kicking out these Roman overlords, that would be a shocking statement to say these kids, these are just children. They're super annoying. They cost us a ton of time and money to feed them. Uh, all they do is you know act like kids all day. Um, and Jesus is making a very important point. You need to you need to soften your hearts and change your attitude and become servant leaders. And that's what Jesus is looking for. Uh, just to kind of uh, back up here, um, I want to make this comment when he heals that boy of his demonic possession. This is a super important point too in the New Testament about faith. Remember I said that Almost all of Jesus' miracles were performed for people who had some element of belief or at least an open and and tender heart to accept that Jesus could be the person that he says he is. And then he would perform a miracle for you, a supernatural miracle. Well, once again, he confronts this man, uh, the father of the boy, to say, you know, you know, asking how long has he been like this? He knows, of course. And, and of course, the father says he's been like this since childhood. So this has been a very long time father is desperately worried that his son is trying to essentially kill himself. He goes to Jesus, if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. Jesus' indignant words are perfect, completely lost on a written text. But if you were to be saying them out loud, Jesus looks at him indignantly and goes, if I can, of course I can. (laughs) Of course I can. What do you mean if I can? Everything is possible for him who believes. That's the first thing. Jesus can do anything righteously if you believe anything. The Greek here is literally everything. It's not some things. It's not, you know, a few things depending on how good you are. It is literally everything. Let that sink in. Second thing that he says is, (laughs) the man says, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. Folks, if you are listening to this podcast, I implore you, implore you to seek God out and ask him to help you with your unbelief. All of us struggle with belief. All of us. But you can, and it is biblical, to ask God to help you with your faith. He will. He will. He will convince you like the men who were blind and who slowly started to see Again, you see the connection here. Jesus starts with a kernel of faith, a belief in their heart that maybe Jesus is who he says he is, and maybe he can do everything I ask. And he starts with that. And then you start to see a little bit of fruit. And then your faith starts to grow. And then Jesus gives you a little more. He keeps giving you more and more based on what you can handle until your faith grows and flourishes like a fruit tree producing great, magnificent, abundant amounts of fruit. 
Folks, that is exactly what we should be doing every single day in prayer to our Father, asking Him that He gives us that faith that we need. Give us that faith and God will give it to us. Ask Him for it. Ask Him for it. Finally, we say, uh, kind of to close all of this out, you know, I'm going to talk about the causing to sin. If anyone if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around his neck. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go to hell. Two things, at least here. One, this is figurative. Jesus is making the point, if it was up to us, we would have no body parts left, period. You would have no hands, no feet, no eyes, no any other parts of your body. You would be nothing. That's the point Jesus is trying to make. But what he's saying here is you need to be willing to let me change you. You have to be willing to let me, Jesus, change you. Or else you have to go do those things like cut off your body parts. you got two choices if you want to be righteous and enter the kingdom. If you think it's all in your hands, you better start cutting out physically all those things from your life through works that you think are going to get you into heaven. But here is the rub. It is impossible to do that because you would have nothing left. The only other option is to let Jesus change your heart. And from that, you will stop sinning. You won't be perfect in this world. Don't expect to be. But you will reduce it. You will at least care enough to reduce it so that you're on the path to pure discipleship with Jesus so that when you are resurrected in that afterlife, you will be raised to glory just like Jesus on that mountain, dazzling like flashing lightning, and you will be made new again. But you have to accept that path and be on it. The second very important thing here for all of my liberal Christian friends who think there is no hell because you're a progressive believer in universalism, you are dead wrong. You are dead wrong. Period. Full stop. That goes completely against 99% of the biblical narrative. You have to only take one or two verses completely out of context to even start to believe or think that there is no hell and that everyone goes to heaven. You are dead wrong. Period. Right here in the scripture is another instance that there is a literal hell. And it is the destiny of those who do not accept Jesus and let him change them. Nothing else can be said here except that. And finally, this part about everyone is salted with fire continues to cause a great debate within the the theological community. I think we can all uh, agree that when Mark was finally written down, Christian community was going through a lot of persecution, a lot of change, and a lot of pressure. Everyone will be salted with fire, i.e. Christians are going to suffer, period. No matter what or when or how, you're going to go through these trials. But salt is good. (laughs) Everyone will suffer. Suffering is good. Because if you don't go through these trials, then you will not develop your maturity that you need to let Jesus change you and to be changed. You will be transfigured and transformed 
by the power, the glorious power of the risen Christ if you let him change you and allow you to go through trials which are, if you're a believer, temporary. Please know that. This life will not last forever and this is not our home. But if you are a believer and you have accepted Jesus into your heart, whatever trials come your way, praise the Lord for those. They will make you stronger. They will make you more mature. And they will develop that intimacy with Christ that can be found no other way. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next time.